Welcome to the Uncounseling Show with Dr. Fed Bowley. Each week, the good doctor takes a skeptical, Catholic look at conventional counseling and why it often doesn't work. Dr. Fred has more than 30 years of experience as a counselor and spiritual advisor. He is currently associated with the nonprofit St. Barnabas Reconciliation Ministries, a partner of the Four Persons Podcast. Their counseling is highly effective for several reasons. First, they operate from a thoroughly Aristotle-Eantonius perspective. This not only is highly effective at driving change, it also has a much happier set of goals than many other theories of counseling. Secondly, they ruthlessly promote selfless love for their clients. Counseling is not an ordinary friendship, but it is friendship nonetheless. St. Barnabas works zealously to love their clients and to communicate that love effectively. Third, they are action-oriented. Some people need patient understanding, but most people who seek counseling want to feel better and the faster the better. Therefore, St. Barn works continuously to refine methods that help people start living more happily now, not next week or next year. Finally, they are thoroughly Catholic and Christian. They do not insist their clients are Catholic and they do not judge souls, but the Catholic approach is kindly, beautiful, and dignified. St. Barnabas Reconciliation Ministries specializes in counseling, life coaching, and mediation. For more information, please visit their website at stbarn.org. You can email them at stbarn at protonmail.com or call them at 872-269-1280. For questions or comments about this show, email us at email at thefourpersons.com. And now, therapist, spiritual advisor, and legend in his own mind, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Fred Bowley. What exactly is the opioid epidemic? Is it about prescription drugs or heroin? It's a combination of both problems. Dr. Michael Hooten says back in the mid to late 1990s, opioids were being recommended to treat chronic pain. Problems associated with long-term opioid use include, and probably the most important one is, addiction to the medication. Today, the term for opioid addiction is opioid use disorder. The symptoms of opioid use disorder include primarily an increasingly preoccupation with the medication. So individuals will actually start organizing their lives and organizing their daily structure around taking that particular medication. And for some struggling with severe addiction, if they can't get medication from their health care providers, they may turn to heroin. But you can break an opioid addiction. There's other non-opioid medications that can be helpful. There's other behavioral interventions that can help individuals learn to manage and cope with pain. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Dr. Fred Bowley from St. Barnabas Reconciliation Ministries, and uh, we're talking tonight about the opioid epidemic and how we might view that from a Catholic perspective. So uncounseling is a show that looks at uh, counseling from a critical point of view. Why doesn't counseling work? 
A lot of people get a lot of help from counseling, but a lot of people don't. And in some really basic and important ways, the, the goals of counseling are often at odds with um, what would make good sense <laughs> and would help us. We have Gian with us. Gian is a graduate of Divine Mercy University and is a fine Catholic counselor in Philadelphia. Where is it that you work, Gian? I work with uh, Integrity Counseling Services, and we are located just out of Philadelphia, uh, outside the city on the main line. It's a town called King of Prussia. Oh, yeah, King of Prussia, sure enough. Well, I know that you have some experience with um, dealing with people who have drug abuse problems as well. Isn't that right? I do. I do. Before I worked here, uh, I, I worked for a year and a half at, uh, it's called Malvern Treatment Center, and it was an inpatient drug and alcohol unit uh, in, in the city of Philadelphia. I think that uh, the opioid epidemic, as we call it, is really not understood widely amongst people. I think most people don't realize how serious of a problem it is. So first of all, do you have some sense, or can you explain to us, why is it a problem? Um, I think that one easy place to start is just kind of the, you know, the death toll. Um, and so the, the number of, the sheer number of, of deaths from overdose from opioids. Mm-hmm. And, and so just to, uh, you know, start things out. So in, in 2020 alone, there were 69,000 deaths from opium drug, from opiate drugs. Um, right. In, in, in in our country, and and if you look at the the range from 1999 to 2020, there's uh-huh. over, over 500,000 you know overdose deaths wow. from opiate drugs. So that sounds terrible. Um, it, has that changed at all? I mean, why why is it called an epidemic now? Do you have uh, a sense so, of that? So I know there have been a few increases. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, and uh, so I don't know the numbers from before this time, but I do know that you know according to the CDC website, there uh, there are three waves of the opi- opi- opioid opioid epidemic, uh-huh. if you will. And uh, so the first wave um, was kind of following increased prescription opioids in the 1990s, and uh, there was uh, you know a, a Significant increase in, in overdose deaths deaths from opiates uh, is starting around 1999 at least at least 1999 if not earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, then the second wave of uh, of the the opiate crisis is uh, started in 2010, and there was mm-hmm. a actually a rapid increase in overdose deaths involving heroin at this time. Okay. And then the third wave is, uh, you know, another significant bump in overdose deaths. And this was related to and associated with the, um, the you know, kind of mass production of, of fentanyl, which right. is a, a very, you know, it's, it's, it's similar in, in, in its compound structure to chemical compound structure to two other forms of, of, you know, opiate drugs such as heroin. But it's uh, many times more powerful, basically, and uh, mm-hmm. so therefore, you know, much easier to overdose on. 
Right. Uh, I was looking at, uh, I printed some stuff off from the DEA, uh, and one of the things I saw was from just January 31st, 2020 to January 31st, 2021, overdose, uh, overdose deaths involving opioids rose 38%, but overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids rose 55%. So over one year, a huge increase. Um, when I was going through my training years and years ago, um, people talked about heroin not really being a problem anymore because it had killed so many people that, that the people on the streets were like, no, oh, no, no, thank you. You know, everyone had learned their lesson that there were uh, much safer ways to... Uh, to numb your pain or to get high, either way, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it seems like, I don't know if it's a memory thing, like uh, the, the older people remembered and the younger people came along and thought, oh, well, you know, I, I've never known anyone who died from heroin, let's try it. Or mm-hmm. what? I mean, do you have any sense of why is it that if you know that something is dangerous, you do it anyway? I mean, what are people thinking on this? That's uh, That's a really good question. Um, and I think that, I think that increasingly there are more and more people who know somebody who, uh, you know, overdosed on, on, uh, you know, some sort of opiate. Um, and, and so I think that that, you know, uh, may have an effect in terms of bringing numbers down. Um, but I, I also think that, um, what you're saying, you know, sounds relevant in terms of, you know, there being kind of a, it's kind of funny to talk about, but a stigma, you know, associated Mm -hmm. with heroin, and that would be something that would discourage people from using heroin. Um, And then the next generation, you know, the memory thing, you know, or or this, you know, the next generation doesn't know that or doesn't have that familiarity, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. not personal for them. Um, You know, I also think that, um, just, uh, you know, I mean, I, I like to kind of, you know, harp on the state of the family um, and, and you know, broken families, um, which we know has, has you know, been on, on the rise. And then, uh, you know, there's also, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, wanting to fit in, I think, is, is something that actually really does drive mm-hmm. a lot of adolescent behavior. Um and and so I think that um, you know doing things to fit in, and and on the other side, you know when you don't fit in, what mm-hmm. what are you, you going to do to numb that pain? Um, and I think that that you know I can speak personally. I know at least one you know person who was in a very severe opiate addiction, and I think that was that was a big part of it, is is wanting to to numb that pain. Mm-hmm of just feeling, you know, uh, you know, like an outcast basically. Right. And, and so I think that, uh, I think that bullying plays a part here and the way he mm-hmm. described, he actually graciously described his experience to me. And mm-hmm. he said that once he tried it, like the first time he was like, yeah. this is it. This is, this is what my life is going to be about. This is, right. this is, this is how good this experience was. Wow. So uh, opioids uh, affect directly those uh, pleasure centers in the brain. Is that right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. 
So I heard heroin, for example, described as being a thousand little tongues licking honey <laughs> all for all eternity or something like, you know, it's a wonderful feeling at first, um, but later than what? Uh, well, um, I, I mean, there's just the 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 need to be feeding that habit, you know, because I mean, naturally there's going to be a come down and, you know, with come downs of, of all sorts, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, uh, you know, a drop in, in dopamine below the baseline level. And that is basically what we experience as pain. And, and so it's negative thoughts, negative emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so there's that, uh, and then there's, you know, the increase in, in drug seeking behaviors mm-hmm. in surrounding yourself with people who are using and selling drugs. You're, you're more likely to, you know, experience betrayal, experience trauma, um, intensify, you know, negative thoughts and feelings and distrust mm-hmm. that you have. And, and so there's that kind of loop. Um, and, and, you know, so, uh, you know, I think at some point it, it, you know, often becomes, you know, addicts talk about it as, um, getting well, actually, you know, because, because the withdrawal symptoms have become so severe and it's such Mm -hmm. a substance that, you know, in order to not be sick, you need to use. And, and, you know, that sickness can involve, you know, nausea, fever, uh, throwing up, uh, body aches. Uh, It's, it's a really, you know, horrifying really to, 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 to watch somebody go through it. It's, it's, it's awful. Mm-hmm. So it is real suffering once you get trapped into that cycle. Yeah. You were talking earlier about the breakdown of the family. And I think it's really helpful to think about that. Like what is the mechanism? How is it that because when you say breakdown of the family, you're talking about family splitting apart so that we don't have two parents in the home. Is that right? Uh, that's right. That's a big part of it. Yep. So how does that work? How does that make a kid more vulnerable to using or trying something that's probably bad news? I think that um, I think that just kind of on a a natural law basis, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, takes, it takes you know a woman and a man to create a child. The natural order of things, um, arguably at least, um, is is that you know the the the, the mother and the father commit themselves to one another, mm-hmm. and and they raise the child together. Um, right. I I do think that that provides the best conditions for normal and you know good human human development. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I, I think that because um, because of the sheer amount of resources, kind of on a, on a you know a, you know an evolutionary bio, a biological level to kind of start, mm-hmm. um, it just the amount of resources it takes to to raise a human child is pretty immense. Um, right, I mean, they're, they're really really needy, and uh, you know the the woman is pretty compromised and her ability to do things and, you know, survive in a lot of ways um, mm-hmm. when she's 
pregnant and when she's, you know, you know, taking care of, of an infant. Right. Um, so it's really helpful for uh, there to be another set of hands around to help with um, income, with, with household tasks, with, with even caring for the baby and, you know, waking up, you know, in the middle of the night to, to do things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so from like a, a sheer survival standpoint, I think that, um, you know, having two is better than having one. Um, and, and then in terms of um, why, why, you know, a mother and a father uh, and why mm-hmm. it's best this mother and the, you know, that, that, that father are, um, you know, biologically tied to the child as opposed to a step parent, which can still serve a lot of really good, you know, Sure. Needs the child, mm-hmm. um, but if there's a need for a step parent, then there obviously was a gap in 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 there somewhere where the biological right. parents were there. Whether that was a divorce or a death or just an abandonment, you know, um, whether they were never married, you know. Uh, right. So, um, so I do think, in order to get into that, I I. I Harken back to you know my Christian worldview, and and you know the 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 complementarity of of you know maleness and femaleness, mm-hmm. and and basically the way that you know women have uh, a certain kind of a genius uh, you know in the words of Saint John Paul II in, in terms mm-hmm. of their ability to nurture, to comfort, to be emotionally in tune with a developing child in a way that. Men often have a diff, more difficult time doing. It's not that it's impossible or they can't do it. It's just not quite as natural, or we're just not as good yeah. at it. You know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, and likewise, um, the, the the husband, I think, or the the man, the father, um, has an ability, I think, to um, to see things kind of in an objective way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, really play the role of, I don't want to be too simplistic, but, you know, provider, protector, leader, um, you know, disciplinarian um, mm-hmm. that, that can really help the child, I think, you know, and, and kind of weaving attachment theory into here, you know, how, you know, the, the, the mother can really help the child to feel comfortable, to feel free, mm-hmm. you know, nourished and nurtured, and the father can then kind of, kick the child out of the nest, so to speak, and, mm-hmm. and expose him to the world, um, you know, help him develop, you know, you know, the skills that are going to be necessary to be, to be an adult in, in, right. in society. So, so those are just a few kind of scattered kind of thoughts. No, that's fantastic. We will be right back to the uncounseling show with Dr. Fred Boley on the four persons network. The four persons Inc is a licensed 501 C three nonprofit. All rights reserved. No use of our content is allowed by law without our permission. Our goal is to bring you the very best Catholic content possible, including great hosts like Fred. Going forward, we will continue to bring you the best apologists, educational programming, devotionals, and live charitable and social outreach and activism. However, we cannot continue to bring this great programming without your help. All of our members are volunteering their time and efforts, but the hosting, programs, licensing, and subscriptions needed to keep this going costs money. 
right now, our credit card platform is not yet operational, but you can still send your tax-deductible gift to the Four Persons Inc. P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. That donation address again is the Four Persons Inc. P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. If you are interested in advertising on our shows or have any questions or comments of any kind, email us at email at thefourpersons.com or call us at provides faithful Catholic counseling and coaching for men in Missouri and beyond. He conveniently offers telehealth services for anxiety, depression, marriage counseling, or just getting stuff done. You can find him at stbarn.org or 872-269-1280. Once again, the number is 872-269-1280. Here is the latest podcast schedule here on The Four Persons. You'll want to write this down so you can keep up with our shows. On Monday at 7 will be the new night of The Tangled Knot with Deb Rojas. Tuesday will be a flex schedule. Some weeks we'll have shows on Tuesday, some weeks we will not. On Wednesday, that will be the new night of Uncounseling with Dr. Fred Bowley. Again, that's on Wednesday at 7, Eastern Time, Uncounseling with Fred Bowley. Thursday will be the second flex scheduled date of our week. On Friday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, it is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with Ken Litchfield. Then at 7 p.m., the Luke Haskell Show. On Saturday... At noon Eastern, it is the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth. On Saturday evening at 7 p.m., it will be the Taking It to the Streets Show with Terry Delp. And on Sunday at 5 p.m., it is Catholicism Rock. That is our regular schedule, and as things change, we will notify you here at The Four Persons. Every day brings another story about the depth of this country's opioid crisis. Overdoses up, emergency services overwhelmed, another family burying a loved one. On Monday, we are starting an extensive series here on the NewsHour, broadcast and online. It's called America Addicted, and it will look at how opioids are affecting communities throughout the country, from its toll on one city in West Virginia to the rise of powerful new synthetic drugs like fentanyl in New England, and how new programs out West are trying to combat addiction. First, we wanted to take a look at exactly how this crisis began. William Brangham has that. 
It's hard to grasp the full scope and scale of the opioid crisis we are in the midst of. The numbers are staggering. Almost half a million Americans have died in the last 15 years from an overdose, and the majority of those involve opioids. On average, 91 Americans are still dying every single day. In that same period, the rate of addiction to opioids has shot up by almost 500%. And the availability of addiction treatment has not kept up at all. So, how did we get here? Most experts say this crisis began in the 1990s when some doctors and medical associations argued that for generations their profession had ignored the problem of chronic pain, which had caused unnecessary suffering for millions of patients. They started pushing the idea that pain be seen as the fifth vital sign, something to be checked as often as blood pressure and treated accordingly. At roughly the same time, the pharmaceutical industry, which was eager to boost sales of its new class of painkillers like OxyContin, told doctors that these new drugs could be used without fear of their patients becoming addicted. The industry even put out testimonial videos like this one from Purdue Pharma in 2000. We doctors were wrong in thinking that opioids can't be used long term. They can be and they should be. The industry and even some doctors also cited this one paragraph letter posted in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1980. Its authors had looked at the use of opioid painkillers at one burn unit in Massachusetts and wrote, quote, the development of addiction is rare in medical patients with no history of addiction. While the authors and the New England Journal have both said that this letter was misinterpreted, it was cited hundreds of times as an endorsement for the widespread use of opioids for pain. And in fact, starting in the late 90s and early 2000s, the rate of opioid prescriptions began to snowball. By 2015, according to the CDC, enough pills were being prescribed for every American to be medicated around the clock for three straight weeks. But studies have now clearly shown that opioid medications can lead to dependency within just a matter of days. And so this flood of prescriptions led to a surge of addiction. And it also drove a steady rise in overdose fatalities. With these numbers growing, the medical community, local governments, and law enforcement began to take action. New prescribing guidelines were issued. Databases were created to track prescriptions. This was a pill mill operation. Those are the allegations tonight. And law enforcement began a crackdown on the so-called pill mills, the doctors and pharmacies that had been recklessly flooding certain communities with opioids. In 2010, prescriptions of opioids peaked and have fallen ever since. Problem solved, right? Not so fast. In 2015, there were still three times as many opioid prescriptions being written as there were in 1999. And many people have turned to cheaper opioid substitutes like heroin. Seizing on this booming market, drug dealers sought to boost potency and their own profits by lacing their heroin and other drugs with powerful synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Those additives have only accelerated the rise in overdose deaths, which last year killed more than 64,000 Americans. By almost any measure, this is the biggest drug epidemic in American history, dwarfing the number of lives lost to crack cocaine or methamphetamines. It's a crisis that took decades to create, and experts say will take a great deal of time, patience, and work to undo. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm William Brangham.
uh, because I think it's, it's not considered uh, acceptable these days to say what we all know. I think not all of us realize we know, but almost all of us know that women add something that men cannot provide in family and vice versa. You know, it's just not the same. And if you talk to women who have raised kids, especially boys on their own, if they're honest and they have a little bit of insight, they will say to you, it would have been a lot easier if I had a man around the house, especially when the boys hit 12, something like that. Mm -hmm. So here's a kid who um, has not had a father around, say, um, and he's had uh, the kindness of a mother, but he's not had that firm hand of a father. So you were talking about attachment theory. What is lacking in that kid? Why does that kid say, okay, I will try some of that? Whereas a kid who's raised in an attack family is more likely to say, no, thank you. What is in that kid's mind or heart that makes it harder for him to say no? I think that, I mean, it starts with just the example. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, I think, you know, in most cases, having a father around is better than not having a father around, there are exceptions to that. If, mm-hmm. if the father is abusive, for example, it can do more harm. Um, you know, but uh, but generally speaking, you know, in, in even in his flaws, he's better than you know not being there. And and so just that example of uh, you know of of basically right right conduct or or of, mm-hmm. of virtue, of, virtue of, of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in a you know. A, in terms of you know the theological virtue, but also in terms of faithfulness to to his mother, you know the child's mother, and faithfulness to the child, him her him or herself, and so just that example number one of of you know what what makes a good life um, mm-hmm. is I think really really incredibly powerful. Um, right, incredibly sticking powerful. to it when and, things are hard. What's that? Sorry, I said sticking to it when things are hard. Stay in the course even when things yes. are tough. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And uh and then there's also the relationship, you know, that 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 he can have with the with the with the child which, you know, if he's close, if he's observant, he can mm-hmm. point out things if he sees the child going astray in certain ways, you can you can point that out and correct that. Um mm-hmm. and and, you know, and, and if there's a good relationship there, you know, you can even, you know, have a good, you know, dialogue about what's going on and, you know, maybe why why a kid is acting a certain way or what they're struggling with that is causing them to to want to act out in, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that um, that, you know, that example combined with that, the strength of relationship and and, you know, the strength of the person that can just really be kind of transferred to the child, both, both through just, you know, kind of the invisible like relationship, if you will. And mm-hmm. also the kid, you know, the kids being formed, you know, it's, it's just, that's, it's kind of as simple as that. The kids being formed into, uh, you know, what the father is, which is, you know, a man who's, you know, dedicated to his, his God, his wife, his family. Mm-hmm. So being formed by that, you mean uh, developing habits, or, or is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So good habits, the way to be, right? How to do stuff. Right. 
Cool. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you, uh, we know that fentanyl or fentanyl, however you say it, is a very uh, uh, dangerous. The reason that part of the reason that everyone who knows what's going on is very concerned about it is because so many more people are now dying from overdose. But what about these other things? I mean, people still get oxys and uh, whatever, right? Opioid, other kind of opioids. Is there anything particularly wrong with that? Because people also drink alcohol, right? So what is, what would you say from the from sort of a Catholic point of view? What's wrong with taking the odd oxy on the weekend to to make you feel good? Well, uh, that's a good question, and and I think you know I'd start with it is a prescription medication. Um, so you can't get oxy cotton uh, or, or Vicodin. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you cannot get that unless you have a prescription or mm-hmm. you're getting it illegally. So, so maybe it's a good question to to just consider: Why do you need a prescription for those? I think that um, they do provide a powerful, you know, pain relief. Um, and so that's why they, you know, that's why they got approved. That's why they're out on the market. That's why doctors prescribe them, you know, at least they want to do so in good faith. And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that, um, I think they are a viable treatment option for pain, whether they're they're the best treatment option and whether it's, it's worthwhile considering the potential pitfalls is another question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know that they make things hurt less. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so if Which you're in a, a lot good of pain, thing. if you're in a lot of pain, it is going to make you feel better. Right. But I suppose, I mean, you can easily overdose on oxycontins as well. Maybe not as easily as with with the fentanyl, but it's definitely it can be dangerous, right? Uh, yes, you can. You can still overdose on on prescription drugs, and and I think that um, so even beyond that, those those ethical concerns, I, I do think that um, just the high level of of, of addictiveness that that opioids right. have is something that should make a- any reasonable person. very concerned, you know, about, yeah. about, you know, you know, you know, what, 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 why would I be doing this? What's, what's going on here? You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's gotta be more going on. Um, you know, that this is, this is not, you know, rational, so to speak. You know, if you're, if you're reaching for the pills, cause you've got some emotional stuff going on, you don't know how else to deal with it. That's one thing. But I think on a rational level, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense. Right. So uh, you're addicted to something. Um, the problem with that maybe is that you have less free will. You have less choice. Would that be reasonable? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Def- definitely. So even if there aren't dire health effects from using something every single day for a long time, it's still nice to be able to not use it if you choose not to use it. And I, right. I think one of the... Go on. Sorry, GM. Oh no, that's. I, I was just gonna say, yeah. If if you, I mean, if you if you need it, mm-hmm. that's that's. I, I guess so. I take the position that I think that's wrong because I think that's an attachment. 
Um, Tell me why. I, I, I know people make the argument that, well, what does it matter if you can always get it? You know, if you can always get it, and, and then that, that off, that's often used, you know, in reference to coffee. Um, but, uh, oh, you know, no. I think has, you know, pretty objectively less serious repercussions in somebody's life than, than, than sure. an opiate. Um, but imagine you, you could, uh, you know, you could, you could, you could take your, your oxycodone every day and you could function mm-hmm. and you were always, you always had a supply. Um, is it still wrong? I personally think so. Um, but, uh, you know, some people disagree with me. Um, either way, I'm pretty concerned about the effects that's going to be having on your life. Right. Well, even if you take uh, just your normal prescribed amount for some very painful um, condition that you have, um, your consciousness is not the same after you take something like that, is it? Doesn't that uh, affect your uh, awareness and alertness? It does. It definitely it definitely does. So, and I know some people who are, for example, um, uh, fatally ill, right? And they they know that there's no chance, aside from a miracle, that they will recover from whatever they have. But they choose to cut back on the pain medicine so they can have a little bit more of the alertness. They can be more present for their family or present to the to the, to this life. So it tells me that there's a, there is some choice there, you know, and maybe one way could could be said to be better than another. And I'm not saying people shouldn't take um, medicine adequate to, to their pain, but I could definitely see that anything that you do that dulls your senses or um, makes you a little bit less alert or awake is probably overall not that great of a thing unless you're trying to go to sleep specifically maybe what do you think i i agree with you i i think that it's it's certainly less than ideal i think that um there may be certain situations where it is the the best option um uh, or even like a necessary option, so to speak, in terms of some of like the um, uh, some of the antipsychotics um, that that can help a person, you know, stabilize their mood when they're when they're having, you know, on you know serious instability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think that um, the idea, you know, would be I think that that would be temporary. Um, you know, that, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. If, it had to be, if it had to be, it had to be, but I, I think in most cases it's, I wouldn't recommend it being the long-term solution. And isn't that the usual sort of uh, treatment guidelines for um, opioids, that they are very effective for short-term relief of pain, like weeks, maybe, maybe a month or two at the most. But then beyond that, for chronic pain, they're really not the first line of defense, you know, they they can be used, but it's not what they're designed for. Okay. Um, yeah, go on. What are you thinking, Gene? No, no, I, I, I actually, I didn't know that, so that, that's good to know. Oh, it is true. And, you know, if you look at uh, Suboxone, right? Is that the right way to say it? Am I saying that right? Subox, suboxone, suboxone, Suboxone. It's something that's designed to help people get off opioids. Right. If you're addicted to heroin, it helps you come down off it. But what you find, people wander into your consulting room and they will be on Suboxone. And uh, how long have you been on that? Five years. Five years. 
You're not supposed to be on it near that long, you know, six months maybe. Um, so I don't know if there's not adequate medical supervision of those things or what, but even though I don't think Suboxone leads you to to the sort of uh, stupor that other opioids will, it's still not really good for you, and you shouldn't be taking it longer than six months just for your kidneys and liver, so I understand. Sure, sure. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and that's, I'm glad you brought up Suboxone, that's, because that is it's very popular in 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 recovery these days, mm-hmm. and uh, it's controversial in the sense that you know some people, uh, especially in Narcotics Anonymous, say you know mm-hmm. it's boxing you're still using. Right. Um, uh, you know some people you know uh, you know in in more of like the uh, the harm reduction camp will, uh, mm-hmm. will say that's way too strong. You know. Um, to say that you're still using if you're uh, if you're using Suboxone, um, but either way, you know I do think that. Um, and my understanding, I'm not an expert, but my understanding is that that is the the medical best practices is short term use for for Suboxone. It's, right. it's meant an intermediary to 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 sobriety, and and I I mean even the doctor I worked with at Malvern would say like. Basically, just there's a lot of quack doctors out there, um, you know, who are right. not, not not following the appropriate guidelines, not being attentive, you know, just kind of writing the script and letting them go and just doing it at will, which is, you know, just medically irresponsible. Yeah, I think so. Um, we remind you that we are not giving medical advice on the show. <laughs> we are just speaking of which we have seen. Um this is the Uncounseling Show with Dr. Fred Boley, OP. Special guest, Gian Millies. Gian is a uh, very good Catholic counselor in uh, in the outskirts of Philadelphia. How do people get hold of you, Gian, if they would like to make an appointment? Uh, well, I offer uh, teletherapy or phone therapy or in-person therapy if you live in the area. And you can reach out. Um, you can reach out to our office number, which is 610 610- Six zero one nine seven eight one. That is six one zero six zero one nine seven eight one. You could also email me uh, at, at my email address, which is gianmillis at gmail dot com. That is g i a n m i l l e s at gmail dot com. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, you can get hold of me, Dr. Bowley, at stbarn s t b a r n dot org or stbarn at protonmail.org if you want to send an email. Any questions or comments, uh, we welcome them. So send us an email or call us. Uh, you can get hold of me again at stbarn.org or stbarn at protonmail.com. Um, now, I had some uh, more questions to ask you about um, um, opioids, Gian. Um, what does someone do if they think that someone else in their family, a loved one, um, is misusing opioids. What's the first thing that you can do to get help? The first thing I would say is uh, call. Um, well, I think it, it depends on the situation, but I think that there are um, there are usually resources in most communities. There's there are hotlines. There are um, you know outpatient uh, rehabs. Um, that, that you can talk to somebody there um, and, and get, you know, some feedback. Uh, where I worked, Malvern, we had a, 
the Rock Program, it was called, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, they actually had full-time staff members that were available to talk um, to family members or friends of people suffering from addiction, and uh, and also they would even come out and and help out with you know certain um, uh, interventions, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of the stereotypical. Let's let you know sit this person down with some loved ones and tell them, you know, we think they have a problem, right? Um, and and so they can assist with with that process as well. I think at some point, you know, it, it's certainly going to be something you, you're going to want to confront. Um, but you may want to talk to a professional beforehand so mm -hmm. that you you do it, you know, in a way that's you do it well. You do it well. You don't do it in a way that's alienating or shameful, shaming or condemning. Um, right. But you're communicate you, that you love this person that you, you're concerned about them because of you know objective this you know objectively this 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 and this xyz and what uh would you be looking for you'd really like them to get some help top gun top gun of virginia has been serving the east coast with quality swimming pool shot creek and gunite applications for over 35 years the strong legacy of craftsmanship that Top Gun has garnered is backed by the pride we take in creating a lasting product. Top Gun will help you stay on schedule and within budget, while still maintaining the level of quality control and safety that is expected from a name with 35 years of experience. Top Gun Top Gun of Virginia is a premier supplier of commercial Shot Creek and Gunite services on the East Coast. Shotcrete and gunite are forms of pneumatically applied concrete which can be used to build or repair structures. Shotcrete and gunite can perform jobs which are not possible or are more difficult with traditional, form and pour, concrete applications. Top Gun uses our own volumetric trucks to apply engineer-certified mixes of both wet and dry process applications to meet any need. Top Gun Top Gun is located at 10017, Richmond Highway, Lorton, Virginia, 22079. You can reach them at 703-550-9207 or email them at info at topgungunite.com. Make sure you mention that you heard this ad on the Four Persons Podcast. Um, I think that... Uh some signs that someone is, is abusing uh, an opiate um, would be um, uh, red eyes, um, uh, kind of uh, not um, not fulfilling their responsibilities. Um, okay, not making it to work every day. That's right. Or yeah, yeah, not making it to work. Um, you know, showing up to work late, you know, consistently, um, mm -hmm. showing, up, showing up high, um, uh, you know, missing family events, um, spending less time with one's family and friends, spending mm -hmm. more time with people who um, who are kind of well known as, you know, sellers or, or users of, of opiate drugs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, I think. I think another one is what you said, just kind of a general malaise or a bit of a stupor in their, mm -hmm. in their food um, and, you know, in their, in their attentiveness. Okay. So I wanted to ask you this too, if you don't mind. Um, how has being a Catholic 
um, affected your view of opioids and treatment for opioid addiction? Do you look at things differently than the usual run-of-the-mill counselor? I I most certainly do. I most certainly do, and I think that one way that that I felt like I was different from some of my you know fellow counselors was that I I really felt like it was a calling, you know, to be a counselor, and mm-hmm. so I really felt like it was what you know God put in my life as my mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and so uh, I think that that was different from people who came to work every day and saw it as as a job. Right. Um, and and I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with it being a job. It is a job. Sure. Um, and I'm not saying those people didn't care. Um, you know, there are people who don't care in the field. Don't get me wrong. But you know, there were there were people who cared. But if it's if it's just a job and it's not a, a calling, you know, ordained by God Himself, so to speak, you know, to be grand, um, I do think that there's a bit of a different perspective on on it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's not quite as it, it can become a little more personal in a way that I don't think has to cross any professional boundaries. Right. Um, you know, it, it takes on you know, a, a transcendent dimension. Um, in terms of the way that I approached therapy, um, I think certainly I had a, I had a sensitivity to um, the spiritual life, um, mm-hmm. to uh, to religion and religious practices that some of my colleagues did not have. Um, I worked with. Uh, a number of men who were who were um, who were Muslims, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I learned a lot about the faith, uh, the Muslim faith, and I also, I think I was able to kind of attend and listen and ask questions about that that faith and that those religious practices in a way that my other uh, colleagues may not have, you know, just may not have thought to be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Not have known exactly how. Um, so I think that was that was a benefit, um, and I'm not sure exactly why, but I do think that just having like a coherent worldview with certain you know definitive metaphysical, theological, and philosophical principles, yeah, it just kind of just helps. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know I don't know exactly what I mean by that or how that's communicated, you know, other than just like a general, you know. Well, let me ask you something on, on those lines. Yeah. We've got a couple minutes left. Um, but what about suffering? Because I think you you said before people use opioids a lot of times to numb pain. So how does a Catholic look at suffering different from your standard sort of secular counselor or person out there in the world? I think that I think that in Catholicism suffering can take on just like a whole new a whole new dimension and and so I mean I think most people at least the people I worked with you know 
there was a sense that suffering is bad, you know, but there was also a sense that, you know, for example, you know, you had to suffer to, to, you know, get your job done sometimes. And that was right. kind of what you do. So that suffering was, you know, was good in a sense. It was redemptive in a sense. It had, it had a positive product in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it could, it could serve some, you know, good purposes. Um, the, and this is hard, I think. This is really hard to experience, and I'm not sure even exactly where I, where I am on the experiential level of this, but, uh, you know, the way that our suffering can be seen as, as a grace, as a, as a way to, you know, be united with our Lord on the cross, mm-hmm. as a way to, you know, participate in, in the salvation of the world, um, it's a powerful idea. It's a powerful idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it does allow for a certain acceptance, a certain surrender, a certain trust mm-hmm. in a power, you know, greater than ourselves to use a language um, uh, that um, is, is just powerful. And just, and that's just, that's just different. You know, it's not, it's not just something that is to be tolerated because we know that good things involve suffering. Um, but it actually, you know, again, we, and we, and we don't want to say that suffering is like something to, you know, necessarily seek after for its own sake or that it's good for its own sake. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, it's just, it just has like such a much, <laughs> such a, such a more profound impact than, than, right. than, you know, than than the other first example. So really, if people understand this and are formed well in their faith, then they should be much more um, ready to resist an easy solution, such as taking a pill that will numb you or um, something that is fun but ultimately quite dangerous. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think so. I I guess my first thought is, you know, I'm not sure how much that takes root in individual lives, mm-hmm. um, you know, because uh, they, people might just be poorly formed or, um, right. but assuming good formation, I do think it helps. Right. Um, and, and I do think that in my experience, people who are, you know, for example, there's, I mean, there's more factors than this, but people who are religious are more likely to be, um, you know, at least hesitant, if not downright against um, psychotropic medication. Which right. Sometimes I think people take it a little, a little too far. But, but you know. All right, Diana, I've got to cut you off there. I'm sorry, but we are running out of time. Folks, that is our show for tonight. Um, thank you very much to GM Millie. How do you take a hold of you, GM? Dion uh, does a very, very good job incorporating his faith and professional counseling to help people uh, overcome problems in their lives, including drug addiction. If you think someone that you know or, and love might have a problem with drugs, please seek professional help. Call Gian or get hold of us at St. Barnabas at stbarn.org or stbarn at protonmail.com, and we will do our best to, to get you some help that you need. St. Barnabas is a nonprofit counseling organization that helps people, um, especially in the Catholic faith, but anyone really who needs help. 
Um, we work closely with the Four Persons Blog, famous Four Persons Blog, who are co-sponsors of this podcast together with St. Barnabas. Every evening, there are very interesting podcasts going out live. This one is not live, but most other times you can find a live, live podcast and uh, you can call in. So just before we go, let us pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to work with, with people like Gian. We pray that you would bless his work and bless our work at St. Barnabas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Gian. Thank you so much for having me on. The Four Persons, Inc. is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. All rights reserved. Any unauthorized use of this content without the permission of the Four Persons, Inc. and our hosts is prohibited and subject to legal action. Thank you.